Welcome to My Big Safety Challenge, a podcast all about stories of safety leadership presented by Dale Carnegie and the Board of Certified Safety Professionals. Here are your hosts, Merle Heckman and Mike Palmer. Hello, Mike. Hey, good morning, Merle. Our guest today, a man of passion, passion for safety, passion for people, just comes out of him. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really excited about this. We've got Steve Hawkins joining us and actually in the BCSP studio today, which is really cool in person. Uh, Steve is was a former administrator for Tennessee OSHA for a number of years and is currently COO for FDR Safety and uh, someone that I'm very grateful to call a longtime friend and just a really respected colleague and He's just got a great message, and yeah, I'm just excited about doing this. Let's let's get this going. Good morning, man. I am so excited and grateful. Uh, we're actually joined in studio in the podcast studio this morning by a very good friend and colleague, and a man I respect greatly in the safety profession, Steve Hawkins. Uh, Steve is currently the COO for FDR Safety Consulting in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, we go back, you know, uh, probably close to 30 years of knowing each other and working with each other. And, and over that time, I've just dealt a tr- uh, developed a tremendous amount of respect and admiration for him and, and his message that he relays. So uh, without further ado, good morning, Steve. Welcome. Good morning, Mike. It's good to be with you today, Steve. And I'd like us to just get started in with this question. We find a lot of safety people look back to perhaps the origin where they really launched into their safety career. And we'd like to know about your origin story. And along with that, how has that affected your, your leadership, your safety leadership? So tell us your story, then the connection to that. Sure. So I graduated from college in 1986. I didn't realize it at the time, but after looking back now, the economy was bad at the time. I had a couple of job offers. Both of those uh, were away from home. My grandparents were elderly. We had a small farm. I thought, I'm not, I'm not leaving the place, right? I'm not leaving my grandparents. going to live in Nashville. So started looking for a job, and one of my best friends from high school's father was the director of the Tennessee OSHA program. And so I was talking to him about looking for a job, and he said, well, what's your degree in? And I said, industrial technology from Tennessee Tech University. And he said, well, we hire folks with that degree. Would you like to come to work for me? And I said, you know, considering I I hardly had a job, I had a part-time job, I didn't have, well, I said, of course. And so I completed the paperwork, and actually he, he knew me well, and there wasn't an interview. And so I showed up at the office, and people weren't beating their doors down at the time to go to work for Tennessee OSHA, so maybe that had something to do with it. But nonetheless, I I showed up and introduced me to my supervisor, a gentleman named John Winkler that I worked for for 25 years, who was a, a, a great guy, and worked for him. And, and so started to work for OSHA, was very poorly paid, made very little money. Amen, brother. 
I was ashamed. <laughs> I was a little bit ashamed of my salary, and so I think I made about $14,000 a year, and my friends who all graduated from college, because that's what happens when you graduate from college, everybody says, how much money are you making? What's your first job? I said around 20, so in, you know, I guess I rounded up from 14 to you 20. You weren't a math major, were you? Yeah. Well, actually, I, I was, but I, I was also embarrassed, embarrassed. right? Yeah. And so uh, I remember very well they gave us a parking sticker, told us to put it on our windshield, and I thought, I don't want a state of Tennessee parking sticker on my windshield, so I put mine on a little piece of plexiglass and set it up in the window and took it down when I left. So, um, What would you do there? At the, what was your official title or role in the beginning it was occupational safety specialist one right and i knew nothing i just knew i needed a job and so uh, started work in december went to the osha the initial osha training class in february and came back to the office you know that in those days they set you in a corner and said read the standards book and so literally i was reading standards like for seven and a half hours a day realistically probably two hours a day right doing whatever else i could do to entertain myself but that was what the that was the deal and so i'd been there for four months december january february and into march when uh, my supervisor stepped into my office and said there's been a fatality in brentwood at a residential construction site and you're the only one here you'll have to go so with that vote of confidence right I got my stuff together. In those days, it was a it was a hard hat. I don't remember having safety glasses. Maybe I had safety glasses. Hard hat, safety glasses, a tape measure, and a Polaroid camera, and a couple of packages of film because they were expensive and we weren't allowed to have but like two packs at a time. <laughs> so loaded up my little briefcase, my state-assigned Samsonite briefcase, went got in my little truck and drove out to Brentwood. Remember very well thinking, I'm going to go out there, I'm going to find out who the bad guy was, and we're going to straighten this out, right? That's how I thought this would go. We're going to figure out the facts, and we're going to penalize them, because that was the, that's the regulatory scheme, right? And that can be, if you're not careful as a regulator, that can become your mindset, which is a mistake, right? So I drove out to the, drove out to the job site, pulled up. There was only one truck there, rough gravel, you know, the large gravel where they're just getting it going. The house has been framed. The roof is on. And pulled up, and there's a gentleman who seemed pretty old at the time. I'm sure he was about my age, probably around 60. And he's sitting on the bed of the truck, on the tailgate of the truck, looking down at the ground. I pull up, and he doesn't even raise his head. I walked up to him, you know, ready to do my job, had on my shiny white hard hat and my business cards and my Polaroid camera around my neck. And he raised his head up, and he was, he was sobbing. He, he wasn't just crying. He was, he was sobbing. He was very emotional, and I, I was I was thrown off by that, frankly. And so I said, you know, trying to kind of just get started with this investigation, uh, can you, you know, t- tell me what happened? And the first thing he told me was how the person who was killed, his friend Dave, who had died the the, the day before when when he fell from the makeshift scaffold that was built, was his best friend and how they had taken their families to the beach together, and how they had fished together, and how sometimes his friend Dave owned the company and he worked for Dave, and sometimes he owned a company and Dave worked for him, but they had been building houses together for like 30 years. And uh, 
he was still, I mean, he, he was crying, he was sobbing, he was talking in, in between, you know, catching his breath, that kind of thing. What was that like for you? That So it was, uh, it was unnerving, frankly, because it's not how I envisioned it going, because I'd been to the Institute, we had done mock opening conferences, and they didn't prepare us for that, right? You know, I thought it was going to be very businesslike, and, and it was very emotional, and it was very personal. I remember the next, you know, after we kind of worked our way through that and I got some basic information, I said, we need to go up and look and, and see what happened. He said, well, I'll show you exactly what happened. And we walked to the second floor of the of the building from the house from the inside, and they had uh, built a makeshift scaffold between two bay windows. And it had two 16-penny nails going into the two-by-four that was supporting the scaffold. And those two nails lined up perfectly with two sandwiched two-by-fours, and the nails went right right into the opening or into the, the, the crevice where those two boards were, were together, right? And they were nailed up tight, but that's, there's no holding power, and the nails pulled out. His friend wasn't wearing a harness. There was no fall protection, really, and those, those two nails pulled out, and one side of the little scaffold spilled off, and he fell about two and a half stories and his head on a rock, and it, and it killed him. And so... Having been to the OSHA Institute and was prepared for how to conduct an inspection, I took the photographs, I took the measurements, but I wasn't prepared for the emotion of the event, really, and I also wasn't prepared for how personal a fatality really is. And so what I thought my role was, and truly from a regulatory standpoint, my role was to go there, have an opening conference, you know, do the investigation, do the walk around, find the hazards, issue the citations, which I, I remember we did. But that wasn't the part that had the impact on me. What had the impact on me was the how devastated the gentleman was to lose his friend and his coworker. And I remember very well uh, driving back home after that pretty emotional day and we were there most of the day all at once out of nowhere and completely unexpected I came to the realization that workplace safety and health working for Tennessee OSHA was an important job because I I had friends that had jobs and they were you know they were selling uh, equipment or they were you know working in a engineering consulting firm one of my friends was and I remember thinking, none of what they're doing is life or death, but this is. And on that day, I, I came to the realization that I have to try hard, right? This is important. I need to apply myself to this job. And and so probably really for the first time in my life, I thought, you know what? I'm going to try to be the best at this. I'm going to learn how this really works, and I'm going to apply myself because really, in, in a way, I was reeling from the experience of having to talk to somebody who just watched their best friend die and that our agency was responsible for investigating that and, and, and determining the outcome, issuing citations or whatever, which we can talk all day about how after the fact is way, way too little too late. Uh, also kind of remember thinking that they didn't understand the risk involved or they mm-hmm. wouldn't have taken it. So many times in what we do, uh, the workers who are involved, the people that are involved, the supervisors, the managers, they don't understand the risk. And I think one of the things, the challenges that we face in safety and health is to communicate the risk to the people performing the work so that they understand the risk. Because we're not born being able to assess risk, right? It's something that has to be learned. It has something that has to be taught. And so 
if, if you're talking about an origin story to a career, and, and I still wonder often how it is that I got right here, right in time, but that was the day that things changed for me. I was never again embarrassed mm. uh, to say that I worked for the state and specifically that I worked for Tennessee OSHA. I did that job for 32 years, and uh, never once was I ashamed after that initial four months to be, quote, working for the state. It sounds like you really realized that my job matters. Is that something – how did that affect in just how you led other people, how you worked with things? You alluded to it, but tell us a little more. So for for me, I mean, to, to think that your job matters wasn't as much as I remember thinking safety and health is paramount, right? This is unbelievably important because – People get killed. They they die, right? Everybody doesn't have a job where if you don't, you know, if you don't recognize the risk, if you don't do your job well, a, a person can pass away, right? That, that they can lose their life in the process. And how we have this, we have this regulatory scheme and we have these standards and how, you know, as imperfect as they are, if, if you try, right, if you really put effort into having a safe workplace, you can succeed. It, we know there's many, many organizations that are very successful at having a safe workplace. And if you don't, this is what can happen. And so for me, pretty much all at once and out of the blue, I realized how important safety and health was. And it, it's still to this day, uh, to me, it, it it's, seems like the most important thing a, a company does. It's the most important role that there is. Yeah, Steve, the, the uh, you know, when I'm I've heard you speak many times at conferences and seminars and uh, the theme of what we do matters and telling those stories. Um, talk to me about how that propelled you from beginning as a compliance officer. Yeah, and I, and I'm, I remember that well. We, we share those stories to uh, the top position as the administrator for TOSHA. How did you, you know, that, that again, that theme of, what we do matters. Um, how did that propel you to that position? So the progression for me after about four or five years, I was uh, promoted to area office supervisor, which meant I had three or four compliance officers who who worked under my direction, right? I was their supervisor. And so the people who'd been there for a while wasn't a you know, it wasn't much of a challenge for them. They already knew their job. But as we hired people, as we hired new people who to work for us to become compliance officers, I realized very early on that it was my job as supervisor to make what we did seem important to them, that they understood the importance of what we did and doing it well, right? Identifying hazards, getting hazards corrected, investigating fatalities, doing a report that explains what happens, meeting with the family, after the event so that they had a neutral third uh, entity who could explain to them what had actually happened and they didn't have to hear rumors from the funeral home or rumors from somebody else that we had photographs and we had a written report and we were a third party, how important that was. And that's probably where I I first started to realize how important leadership was because the new hires uh, looked to you for for guidance and direction, and that meant you had to you had to convey how important this work was to those people because they came straight out of college and they were just like me. They were underpaid and probably embarrassed to be, quote, working for the state. 
and you had to make it real for them. And that was that was one of the first uh, that was probably the first exposure I had to to leadership and not really even know it right that it's important to make it real. And as leaders in in safety and health, and that's everyone who's in this field is a leader of of some sorts, right? Nobody may it may not be on your job description that you're a leader, but you have to lead the people in the facility or on the construction site that you're trying to keep safe. It's your job to lead them. And you know, we've heard the term manage up. Sometimes you have to manage up. Sometimes you have to convince the the site superintendent or the plant manager that we've got a serious situation that we need to address, right? And that way you're a, a leader, you're managing up in some cases even, and you're also a salesman. I mean, you have to sell safety and health. I remember going to uh, one of the first classes at the at the state where they talked about customer service, and all of the people who worked for OSHA were saying, well, what are you talking about? These are not our customers. We're a regulator. We, we tell people what to do. Well, these are not our customers. And then as the, the person who taught the class did a good job, and they explained that these are your customers. And for us in safety and health, you have to be a leader. You have to give good customer service, and the people in the facility or on the construction site that, that you're working with or that you're overseeing, those are your customers too. And, and what you deliver is a ride home, right? However they got to work, they need to go home in the same, in the same way that they came to work. And so... It was an evolution for me as far as leadership to, to learn, you know, I guess more about people. They sent us to a few classes in those days. You know, you get promoted, you had to go to a leadership class. But I think the thing that never changed for me and was always a good compass for me and always pointed the right direction is that what we do in safety and health is, is really the most important thing there is. It's the most important thing. Steve, there are sometimes safety professionals get into it and they get kind of worn down. I mean, they get pulled a lot of direction, different directions. They're not always, they're sometimes looked at as the, the enforcer and that kind of thing. How do you help those people when they get just worn down? Yeah, it matters, but they're beaten up. So after having left the state and done consulting the last three years, you you actually get a more intimate look inside a an organization that, that you're trying to help. And you do see folks in the safety and health role who, who do kind of get beat down. For me, when I would start to lose focus, I would tell myself when I was going to bed at night, tomorrow I'm going to do a better job and I'm going to refocus my efforts on protecting employees and, and doing a good job and not be bogged down by the bureaucracy of working with the federal government, the budget office, the comptroller's office, the audit that's going on, whatever's going on, right? And always stay focused on protecting people. And that always worked for me. I don't know that that would work for everybody. But the job that we all do, that we all love, is is not an easy job. You, you're almost always stuck in the middle. You're almost always stuck in the middle, and you don't always get everything that you want or need and that you know that you want and need. And so I've actually told people, you know, if this, this could be that this is not the job for you, right? An old man told me once, you see all those cars on the interstate every morning? They're not all going to the same place. Mm. And so if you enter this field and you're frustrated and it's not for you, there's, there's nothing wrong with finding something else to do. But if you're going to stay in this field, you're going to have to acknowledge that there's going to be challenges and you won't overcome all of those. But 
at least for me, if you always focus on the worker and the people aspect of this job, it will keep you energized as opposed to getting bogged down and reading this rule and say, oh, I've got to comply with every paragraph of this OSHA standard, which you do, by the way, right? I'm not saying that you don't. But if you focus on the people and you, and you try to transition the written word and what's in your program and what's in your procedure and what's in the OSHA standard, and you try to translate that to the people who are doing the work, that challenge never seems to get old, right? And remembering that everything we do in safety and health is about the people. It's all about the people. We run into situations that we go out and there's been a terrible accident because sometimes people know the proper thing that should have been done and don't do it. But there's a lot of times they don't, right? So there's a there's a ignorance of and right, wrong, and different, right? Everyone is supposed, every employer is supposed to know those rules, but they don't. And this works, this question is, I guess, for regulators, but it's also for just people in the safety profession. When you look at risk versus compliance, right? And you and I have talked a lot about that. Tell me, tell me how that relates to, to leading safety, being risk-driven or compliance-driven, or you think it's a combination, but... Well, I guess in, in my mind, we always think of compliance as being the floor, and, and OSHA will tell you, and anyone will, you, you have to comply with the standards, and if you don't, OSHA will issue citations and a penalty. But there's very little, I guess, borderlining on no recognition by OSHA of assessing risk. It's just we've done that during the standards development. We've created the standard. Now, it's not your job as a safety person to assess risk, your job in OSHA's mind, is to follow these standards. We've already done the risk analysis. We've identified the risk, and here's the fix, and it's following these standards. But for us in the in the field, in real life, we're working with people. It's all about people, and people don't. There's nothing about assessing risk that's innate or what we call common sense, right? It's all about education. When I started with OSHA, I, had, I would have had no idea that an unguarded, uh, unprotected excavation in soil deeper than five foot was a risk or one that was in 10 foot was a risk. I worked for a geotechnical firm. We were installing French drains. They were about 12 foot deep and we were in and out of those trenches all day. And while we were out of it one day, it did collapse. We all looked at it and said, boy, that looks bad. We kept right on doing what we were doing because we didn't understand the risk. And so for us in in the safety field, We have to assess risk. We have to look for hazards. We have to correct those whether there's a standard or not. We have to get away from the belief that if we follow this standard perfectly, it's going to make our job safe, right, and acknowledge that workers don't understand risk and they don't understand hazards. They don't understand the mechanics. They don't necessarily know the difference between carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide, right? I think it's very difficult for us in this field to focus on risk when we're so compliance-driven. And, and compliance is a great place to start. It's, you know, understanding the standards, reading the standards, and try to apply those. But OSHA has already acknowledged if you want to do a great job with safety and health, you're going to have to look at the tenets of VPP, right? The management commitment, the employee involvement, the ha- hazard identification and control, tracking systems. But if we're going to become a world-class safety organization, we have to train our employees and they have to help us, right? They have to be right there in lockstep with with the management of the leadership because the first two tenets are management commitment and employee involvement and you can't succeed without those when you answer that question of being risk versus compliance driven 
you know, the risk side to you is the, is the people side. Back in 2006, I was working with a client that had been, uh, that Tosha had given a citation to regarding a fatality that occurred, uh, trying, to, trying to reach some kind of a settlement agreement. Just had really stalemated for the most part. And uh, your uh, supervisor went and brought you into it since we were in Nashville. And uh, you came in there and you heard everything that was going on, the kind of the legalese part back and forth and kind of all the nuts and bolts. And you did something I'd never, and I do this a lot, but I'd never seen a regulator do is you, you said, well, tell me about you. You were talking to the new safety manager and the employer. You know, what about you do I need to trust in that this won't happen again? What are you going to do differently? What's your plan? And that whole personalization of it, to me, was extremely unique from what I normally dealt with. Because normally, you know, lawyers are there. It's a very legal type proceeding, you know. But but you changed that because you were not going to get into a settlement if you didn't personally have here commitment and faith on their part of going forward. But and I also think it, it, it very much embraces uh, some Dale Carnegie principles there too, doesn't it? Well, it really does, because you could have come in with your role and position as a high-ranking person and played that card. But you put into practice one, something where you, one of the principles is make the other person feel important and do it sincerely. Become genuinely interested in the other person. Steve, why'd you take that approach? You could have played your card of your title. So I think for, for me, I say for me, but it it was really the entire organization uh, really had had developed this forward-looking approach to our regulatory work. And I always wanted to be able to explain after we settled a citation to the family of the person who'd lost their lives what was going to change, right? Because nobody likes to feel like they lost someone in vain. If you can sit down and say, yes, this happened, this terrible thing it happened, and, and but here's what OSHA is doing, and here's what the employer has agreed to do to move forward so that this never happens again. You know, it's really the only solace for a person who's, who's lost a family member or a life-changing event. Everybody wants to feel like that the person didn't die in vain and that there is going to be change. And so, again, it's, it's all about people. And so you have to use your position, whether it's as a regulator or the safety director or the corporate safety director, whatever that is, you're always looking forward and you're trying to improve, right? And so very oftentimes I, I wanted to know what the plan was going forward, not just to resolve the citations that have been issued, but how is this actually going to change your organization? And I can give you so many examples where we had an interaction with a company and it was under uh, bad circumstances that they made a true change. You know, many times in safety and health, we don't think the person at the top really matters until they're bad until they're not good at their job. And when they're not good at their job, it becomes uh, very, very evident. It's hard to make the safety and health program succeed if you don't have strong leadership at the top. Now, Steve, there are people that are going to be listening here who say our culture isn't what we need it to be. How could you encourage somebody to help employers see what you see, whether it's the safety director, the safety director who's working with people over what What advice could you give to help that person. Safety culture doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's just a, it's just a function of the overall culture of the, 
of the organization right. We talk about how to change it. We know that it takes a long time to change right. It's kind of the, you know, culture is kind of the culmination of, you know, beliefs and what, what do we do in upset conditions and, you know, what is it we really believe at this facility. And another unique thing about working for OSHA is you get to go in so many different facilities and see the difference. Even within the VPP program and the people who, who are successful, there's differences in the culture in those organizations. Leadership is always there. Good leadership, if you're going to have a positive culture and you're going to be moving in the direction, you never are able to do that without good leadership. you got to have positive leadership. I saw it at that one site. It, it tells you how important leadership is. And the, the principles that we've looked at, the Dale Carnegie principles, they're spot on. And, and you have to have those to succeed. They're of paramount importance. And always remember, if you're the person tasked with the responsibility of safety and health, you have to be a leader too. Even if, it, even if you don't have a single person that reports to you, you still have to be a leader. You know, one principle that that we often, we talked about last night, allude to, is principle 27. Praise the slightest improvement. Praise every improvement. How do you see a safety professional if they put that into practice? What would it look like and how would that benefit them? So if you think about your role as a regulator, right, if you work for OSHA, that's not something that you do, Right. OSHA points out the deficiencies, they issue the citations, they issue the penalties that go with them. And then many times that's where OSHA's interaction ends, right, at that point. But within the organization, when I was there for many years, uh, and now as a, as a consultant and we work with companies, you, you start to see the importance of positive feedback, right, giving employees positive feedback. If we were going to beat everybody over the head with the rules like we've mostly done for the last 20 or 30 years, right? That's mostly been the approach. And so it's very important to give positive feedback to employees as they make improvements, right? Because you you set the expectation, and if they are going in the right direction, you always want to recognize that. It was my experience with Tennessee OSHA. When people prove to you that they can do the job, you give them more rope, right? Give them more responsibility. I finally learned uh, after many, many years, not to try to micromanage people. Once they showed you they could succeed, give them positive feedback and let them, let them do more. And I think back on my career, I probably made as many mistakes as a, as a leader as you could make. Uh, I probably made them all. I could write them down. Some of them I remember super well. I remember thinking that uh, I must have this job because I'm the smartest person here didn't take long to realize that I wasn't right as I made mistakes. People said, well, you should have known that was coming, right? And so you start to learn to develop people, trust them, and then give them uh, the freedom to to do their job and to excel. And almost without exception, they do. And positive feedback, you know, recognizing improvement is is a huge part of that, right? Because it, it gives you more confidence, and the more confidence you have, the better job you can do. Yeah, Steve, one of the, one of the challenges – that we face as safety and health professionals, especially as we move through our career, is that whole balance of the technical skills, the hard technical skill, and then the soft skills, right? And and both those can lead to credibility. And But when you look back as your time as an administrator and now your role as a consultant, uh, what advice do you have to safety professionals going forward about balancing those, knowing the technical requirements of our job, um, and then the soft requirements that we've been talking about as well. When you learn over time, you, you realize that it, in safety and health, it absolutely takes both of those, right? 
you have to have the technical skills. That's where the that's where the CSP and the CHST that's where they start to come into into play. And so you you develop those technical skills, but you can never truly be successful unless you develop the the soft skills, and that is the ability to communicate with people, and and communicate your passion for what you do to them and how important you think doing this well, right, safety and health, for doing it well, how important that is. That's a soft skill. I mean, I remember in college, I think we had one class, right, in communication. That was it. The rest of them were all technical, right? I I think the first step is to recognize how important that is and to start to read uh, books about leadership, right? Start to to attend a class. Go to a a Dale Carnegie class, for that matter, and, and start to read about leadership. You told us a story last night about speaking to a group of people and describing an interaction with there had been a lost loved one and interacting with the family members because that story really showed your passion to us. Can you relate that story? So a person was unloading a articulating boom lift, and for whatever reason they failed to put the ramp out which can happen, you know, we all have momentary lapses of judgment and we don't know what causes those. But for whatever reason, he didn't put out the ramp and he started to unload the articulating boom lift, the cherry picker. And he, he, he drove it off and the front two wheels, he was in the basket, the front two wheels fell off the end of the trailer. The, the boom lift didn't fall off, but it ejected him out of the operator's basket and he hit his head on the concrete and he lost his life. He had on a harness. He had it on properly, except one of the leg, uh, one of the leg straps wasn't wasn't connected, and he had the harness on, and the harness was hooked back to the the lanyard rather was hooked back to the harness, and it wasn't snapped right there on the on the mid rail where the little angle is where it says connect your harness here, right? And so we investigated the the incident. We prepared a report. We got a call. Uh, from the wife who said, I, I want to come in and discuss this, uh, what happened to my husband. Started to talk to her about what had happened. We showed her some photographs of the lift and the wheels off. We looked at those. We talked about the, you know, just the mechanics of the event, what had happened, right? And she was distraught and, and, and sad. She looked at me and she said, you know, I don't understand something. I don't understand why he wouldn't have connected that harness for me. And I remember to this day f- feeling like I had touched an electric fence, like a, a chill went over you because I had never really thought about that before. That was the day that uh, I realized that when we, w- when we try to do what we're supposed to do and, and look at something as elementary as putting on your seatbelt when you get in your car, Ask yourself, who are you putting that seatbelt on for? Because that lady desperately wished that her husband would have connected his harness to that tie-off point inside that basket using the lanyard, and he would still be there, and he would still be making a living. They would still have their house, and she wouldn't be staring down the, the barrel of a terrible situation. That was the day that I realized you don't just work safely for yourself. You do what you're supposed to do for all of the people who who count on you because if you don't, they're going to suffer. And most of us don't want to see somebody that we love suffer. And if we think about it in those terms, 
we'll do what we're supposed to do. Which reminds us of the safety professional. And back to your earlier statement, this job matters. Always trying to remind the people. It's not just that we're following a regulation. We're not just trying to protect the company to save us money for a fine. Our job matters because we're trying to remind folks that they matter to people important to them. That's exactly right. And when we say this job matters, it's not just our job as a safety professional, but it's what we're trying to accomplish really matters. And we have to communicate the importance of that to the people who are doing the work and remind them you're not just doing this for yourself. Think of all the people that are counting on you to come home. And then clicking that seatbelt has a different meaning, right? Well, what do you think, Moran? I think he's ready for some rapid fire. Let it roll. <laughs> all right. Got a little surprise to throw at you, my friend. We want to we wanna kind of wrap this up in this great conversation um, with three rapid-fire questions. And I'm going to ask you just to give me these in brief few words to a sentence answer for each of these three questions. You ready? All right, here we go. The first one, give me, a, as a safety leader, uh, when you think back about your career, give me, give me one particular moment that stands out in your mind that you said, man, that, what I just did was very successful. I was very effective. Made you feel good. I'm not sure that this is the answer that you might want, but, but one of the things that comes to mind when you ask me that question is when another state OSHA program sent their leaders to Tennessee to see how we had accomplished what we had accomplished. That was probably, uh, for me, they that was a huge uh, recognition of what we had accomplished in our in our in running the regulatory program is that another state flew to Tennessee and spent a week with us to look at how we we manage our processes. Perfect, perfect. All right, flip the coin. Give me the low. You think back and it could have been a, a lesson learned, or it could have been a time where you just felt like, um, you know, I'm struggling right now. We had a call one day that there was an unguarded excavation in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, and we sent a compliance officer out. I was the supervisor, I think, at the time, or maybe the manager. We sent a compliance officer. They identified the hazards. They issued the citations. And uh, nine days later, slightly after the office had closed, within an hour or so of the end of the workday, got a call from the emergency management agency in Rutherford County that there'd been a trench collapse. We responded, drove out there, we pull up on the job, and the name of the company that we had met with nine days before in an informal conference about how they had purchased a trench box and would start using it, the name was on the side of the truck. And the owner of that company who we had just met with nine days before who showed us pictures of his trench box and uh, how he'd bought this trench box and how he was sorry that he had had this deep excavation, you know, relatively deep excavation. Uh, and John and I pull up and there's this on the door and we just met with him nine days before and he's in this, buried in this trench almost for sure dead along with one of his employees. After a trench had partially collapsed, knocked the person down, they all went down in the ditch to make it, make sure he was okay and then the ditch collapsed and Go covered. I, I said, too, I'm pretty sure it was three. It killed all three of them. And so it was a low point for me because if the regulatory system was supposed to work, we had identified a hazard, issued the citations, issued the report, 
issued the penalty, had the informal conference, received proof of abatement, and then nine days later the owner's dead. And he had two daughters that were the same age as my two daughters. And everybody we interviewed said this is one of the greatest people that they'd ever worked for, that he would give you the shirt off his back. One guy said, you know, one day my truck wouldn't start, and he gave me the battery out of his truck and called his wife to come and pick him up. And that was the day that uh, I realized that what we had done from a regulatory standpoint was an abject failure. Well, well played. I agree. That, that been there, and you feel like you just uh, weren't able to do what you feel like you're supposed to do, purpose to do. Uh, last one for you. So you got a young compliance officer or a young safety consultant out there coming up in the safety leadership world. Give me a pearl or nugget takeaway for them. I guess the first thing that would come to mind is you have to, you truly have to believe in what you're doing and that what you're doing really matters. If you can't develop that passion and belief, the true belief in what you're doing and that it matters and that this, and that safety and health is the most important thing, then do some soul searching and make sure that you want to stay in this field. Well, Steve, I can't thank you enough, man, as this has been wonderful. Um, I also thank you for your, your career, man, you, you, you have really made a difference. I've personally been able to see that. I've seen the difference you've made in people. And um, so I thank you for your time today and the stories. And, and more so, I thank you for what you've done in your role in the safety profession as a leader. And, Steve, I would say that when you look at the 30 Carnegie principles, human relation principles, over half of them use the phrase the other person, the other person, and all of them imply that. And looking over your career, you've focused on other people, their well-being, encouragement for them, motivating them, challenging them in some cases. But it's always been the other person, and that's a life well lived. So, so when you think about it, in safety and health, it's always about the other person, right? I just want to say thank you for the opportunity to to be here this this morning and. Last thing I'd just like to say, the team of people that I worked with at, at Tennessee OSHA and the, the team that's still there, you know, they're, they're just part of the equation, right? But they were, they were great people. I learned uh, so much from the people that I worked with. And by and large, I think one of the things that made us pretty successful is we had a group of people who really, really believed in what they were doing. And you know, a small group of people who really believe in what they're doing can accomplish a lot in this world. And I owe a lot to to those people for for teaching me uh, about leadership. Uh, it's not something you're you're, you're born. You you got to learn it. And it it was great working with those people, and it's great working with the folks at FDR. It's a uh, it's a people. We're in a people business, and it's always about the other guy. Words that I heard Steve say. He talked about things being emotional and personal as we're guiding people in safety. Wow, that was great, wasn't it? And and the the stories he told really gave you to where it matters to him and how, how much he believes his job matters. And, you know, we'll hear about some fatality investigations and kind of how that formed him. Uh, but, you know, just his central message about this is about the people. Right, and and you got to keep focused on that. Just just a just a fantastic message 
So for all those who have heard this, it's the reminder, people matter. The well-being of others and the network of people they influence through their well-being and safety makes a difference. Thanks so much for attending. Thanks for listening to My Big Safety Challenge, a podcast produced in partnership by Dale Carnegie and BCSP. With your hosts, Dale Carnegie Master Trainer, Merle Heckman, and Mike Palmer, Principal at NSAFE. Executive produced by Charlie Eltringham. Supervising producer, Michael Escobedo. Audio engineering and editing from Jesse Gray and Giachi Liu. Editorial support from Tyson Matthews. Consulting producers are Colin Brown and Mark Sullivan. To have new episodes delivered directly to you, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. If you would like to share your story of a safety leadership challenge you faced, email us at info at mybigsafetychallenge.com. See you next time.